I really don't see specifically gender defining who I am. I want people to see me for me and for what I can offer and what I can contribute. I guess I've just always looked at it as, okay, you're either going to value my input and what I can deliver or you're not, but it hasn't been daunting to me. This is Women Killing It. Women who are killing it in their careers share their stories and advice from making it in today's working world. Your host is Sally Hubbard. After today's interview, be sure to stay tuned. I'll be talking to Allie Young, CEO of The Forum, about one of her five critical skills for success. Today, my guest is Christine Weber, the Senior Vice President of OTT Engineering at Sling TV. She is Sling TV's senior most female executive and engineer. She leads a team of over 250 technical experts who work every day on creating the future of TV. Congratulations, Christine. You are killing it. Thank you, Sally, and thank you for having me. Could you start by telling us about what work you do at Sling TV? Sure. I'm responsible for the engineering platform that provides Sling TV out to our millions of customers. So that can be anywhere from the architecture to design, implementation, the software engineering that goes into it, and then actually deploying and running it and keeping it up and running 24-7 so people can have their live TV whenever and wherever they want it. And I know there's not a lot of women in your field. In fact, I actually went to a conference one time that was a related field. It was cable engineers. It was a conference of cable engineers. So you're doing that OTT for people who don't know is over the top, right? Actually, could you explain to people what OTT means? It is over the top. It means that we're actually using something outside of our control to deliver our service to you. So in cable, or even direct broadcast satellite, it's sort of a closed loop system. With OTT, you're using the internet, uh, somebody else's network to deliver a service. So there's lots of OTT type of services these days. But we were the first to do live TV over the internet. And a lot of people don't realize the difference between what they had watched for years, being able to download movies and watch them and stream them, But those are all file-based. Video on demand is file-based. So some of the popular services that have been out there for a lot longer than us are really just delivering a file to you. And that's pretty easy. That's what the internet was designed for. But it wasn't designed for live TV. If we miss a chunk of that file, you'll not see the nose on your newscaster. And it's pretty important to have very, very low latency. You want to see your news and your sports as it's happening, uh, not later. And so it was, it was an interesting problem or set of problems that we had to solve. And you're part of the team that actually created that platform, right? I am. I am pretty proud of that. We really did what nobody else had done before. And there were a lot of seemingly insurmountable problems. And uh, yet we tackled them. And we had to work with a lot of vendors, a lot of providers, a lot of major internet providers to be able to tune the environment for our service because nobody really understood it. Nobody understood what it meant to take a, a live sports broadcast and put it out in real time over the internet and deliver it to a myriad of devices, not just one cable box, not just one model 
uh, many, many devices, mobile, big screens, everything in between. And as I was starting to say before, I one time I went to a cable engineering conference because my job, apart from hosting this podcast, I actually write about competition. And I was looking at a merger of set-top boxes, cable set-top boxes. <laughs> and I went to a cable engineering conference to learn more about the industry. And there were so few women, so few women. I, It was partly my experience going to these various different industry conferences that made me start this podcast, actually, because I kept going to every conference and saying, wow, there's another male-dominated industry. And it seemed like they were all <laughs> that way. So in your experience in this field, what has it been like uh, being a woman? I imagine you're usually in the minority. Yeah, I'm pretty used to being the only woman in a room. I was uh, one of very few women in my actual college education in my department. It's been the normal for me. Unfortunately, I haven't seen it increase over the years. I've, I've been in this industry for 30 years in one form or another. And it's sad that there aren't more of us because I think we bring an awesome edge to the engineering field, software engineering and video engineering. Why do you think it is? Why do you think that those numbers aren't improving? You know, I think a lot about that. I, I try to mentor young women. I try to work as hard as I can to actually intercept folks. When they're as young as I was, I got involved with technology when I was around 10. And way back then, uh, without dating myself too much, it wasn't real common. And really to keep people excited, I think women and, and young women get distracted or, or they get detractors in their lives that tell them, gee, you, you want to go do something else. And I always try to emphasize how much fun it can be. This, this career is just perfect for me. I am so excited about it and have always remained excited about it. I never really wavered. And, you know, I, it's because I learn every day and I'm a bit of an adrenaline junkie in my private life and learning every day really satisfies that need. Solving problems, solving puzzles, dreaming up new ideas. I, I can't even think of anything that would suit me better than that. And I love to spread that enthusiasm around. I think women are really uniquely suited for this as well, which is why I've, I've never quite understood why there aren't more. Do you think that young women are daunted by the fact that the field is so male-dominated? I think they can be unless they have really important mentors in their lives that are encouraging them to find a way, you know, over, through, around any detractors. And I really, I had the benefit of some really important mentors in my life early on that really told me, you know what, <laughs> you're suited for this. So don't let anybody deter you, just go for it. And I, I try to carry that along in the people that I mentor, regardless of their gender or their background, and in the young women that I try to mentor when they are in middle school, because I think that's really where you have to start for the interest and sparking the interest and in revealing all that is possible in technology. I actually have a son and a daughter, and I'm seeing that you know my son is super into video games and my daughter, not really at all. And even though that's not the only version of technology, I think it's almost that play being focused on technology can really influence interests going forward. 
Maybe we need I more agree. video games. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe we need more video games that appeal to, to girls or something. I uh, actually, I was never a gamer either. They frustrate the heck out of me. I, I, I've written a few, but I, I won't play them. Uh, I watched my son as he was growing up play video games and I'd coach him, but I couldn't stand playing them. Not unless they were about cars. Uh, I like the way games. That was about it. But I do think getting it more prevalent, getting young women involved, making it cool to be involved in technology groups and, and think tanks. We have some really successful programs we've done over the years in encouraging kids of all ages and all genders, all diversity backgrounds to come and, and work with us for a week and dream up new ideas and demonstrate them to us. And I think the more that we can as a society emphasize that, that the world is open to you. Um, we're really selling ourselves short, I think, more particularly in this country, because I actually see a lot of women from other countries joining our organization in technology. And I, I really struggle to find the source of, you know, why isn't that more common even now, 30 years into it? And now you must have viewed the world as being open to you if you got into this field 30 years ago. What do you think is the reason that you are able to see this as a possibility for yourself, despite not seeing a lot of role models that look like you? I think it really goes back to my mentors. My, my very first mentor and my strongest mentor, I think, was my mom. You know, I saw her have a successful career as a registered nurse, and then she left that career completely to have six children, and then found herself in a position after 25 years of marriage as a single parent with four children still at home. And she had to go back into the workforce and she had to claw her way back because things had really changed in the medical field in those 25 years. And she always instilled in us, all of us, that, you know what, you control your destiny and go for it. If you have something that you're passionate about go for it and stay with it. And it's really what started the drive in me. And then I had a really important mentor in high school. And then my college advisor, he was incredible. I, I encountered a few detractors, I would say, in college. And he told me, hey, you know, just go for it. Don't, don't let them define your future. You're good at this and you can pave the way. And I really took his words to heart uh, and just kept them with me. And I try to instill that in people that I mentor. It's important that your mentor doesn't have to be a woman, right? I've had a lot of women on this show who talked about how their mentors were men. And that was the reality of who was available to be a mentor, right? <laughs> but I think that still, even today, young women need to look at all potential sources of mentors. Of course, it's nice to have a female mentor, but men can be incredibly effective mentors as well. Yes, I agree. My high school electronics teacher was a man, and uh, he was incredibly supportive. We were doing things in an electronics class me and my best friend, we were the only two girls there. We were the only two girls that had ever taken his class. And he said, hey, <laughs> you guys can show these boys up. You know, let's do it. And he was just so supportive. And we did things that nobody had ever done before at that point in time. And then that continued in college. My college advisor, again, was a man. And he looked at it as, you know what? You can do anything you want. Just do it. 
and find your voice. And I, I encourage people to find their voice and be tenacious. You know, if, if you run into people who want to dismiss you for one reason or another, whatever it might be, you just keep going. You win them over. I like to solve puzzles. And technology is just a wide array of really fun puzzles and problems to solve. People, that's harder. People are hard puzzles for me. And I think sometimes in our education, we might not focus on that so much, especially in a technology education. Building those alliances with people is really important to your success. And I think that's one of the things that I've learned over time. It's as tenacious and as hard driving as we tend to be uh, women in this industry. It's also okay to ask for help. And that's something that I found really hard. I'm not wired that way to ask for help. And yet I have built some of the strongest alliances in my career when I ask for help and I involve other people. And when I became a leader uh, years ago, I realized that actually that's a really important part of being a solid leader and a solid role model is being okay. It's okay to ask for help and build something together with a whole team of people. That's been a persistent theme on this podcast is how asking for help can really accelerate your career. And I think most of us, I don't know if it's a gender thing, if it's all humans, if it's prevalent, more prevalent among women, but asking for help doesn't come naturally to us. How did you go about getting comfortable asking for help? Did you just try it once and see that it worked and then get more and more comfortable with it? <laughs> yeah, I I, uh, I had to go to remedial ask for sc- help school. I think I it's I'm not hardwired that way to ask for help, and it is something that I constantly try to remind myself to do. And I did get comfortable with it over time, and I I build those trust relationships with people, and that is also very important. The alliances, not only within my circle of influence or other technology people, but also other people in my industry and in my business that they may not understand what we do. And that's okay. But it's my job to help them understand so that we can work together to produce this great product. And part of that is asking for their help, helping me understand their needs and their requirements for success. And I can't say that it it's gotten necessarily easier, but it does come about to my mind quicker. I think about it more often and I try to instill that in everybody that works with me and for me is, you know, let's do this as a team. And if you get stuck, ask. Yeah, it definitely takes practice and (laughs) getting comfortable with it. Um, I wanted to go back to something else that you said about your mother. You said she encouraged you, if you're passionate about something, go for it. Would you advise young women who are starting out in their careers that they should follow their passions? This is something that's been a topic that I've talked a lot about on this podcast, and I would love to have your take on it. Would you advise people to follow their passions? Yes, I absolutely would. If you have passion about what you're doing, you're going to do it far better and you're going to stick with it through the tough times. Uh, It hasn't always been sunshine and roses in my career. And so, you know, if you really believe in something, you're going to have that tenacity that it takes to continue on through the tough times. And I commend anybody who's willing to chase their dreams 
and follow their passion. I've seen people come into my organization after changing careers completely, and that takes courage. And I absolutely commend them for that because they leave something they know because they they find something that they like more, but they're very unsure and they're maybe having to start over. My goodness, that is very, very commendable to see people do that and succeed. And, you know, if they're following their passion, you know, that's awesome. It's funny because I've heard this over and over on this podcast and I've interviewed over a hundred women. So you think I would just believe it now, but I don't know. It's something about the way we're being, we're ingrained in our culture, right? That you've got to think about the bottom line of the the dollar (laughs) Um, and be practical that I still am like, really, are we really supposed to follow our passion? Even though I've heard it from so many women. Let me ask you this. This is something that I've been kind of obsessing about recently, which is that a lot of women do follow their passion, and a lot of that is has to do with making the world a better place, helping other people. And I feel that men are actually socialized by our society to be the breadwinner, right? That's kind of like the highest value that's placed on them, and there's a lot of messages that they're getting all the time to be um, that their value depends on their breadwinning ability. And so I feel it seems to me that men more will more often be focused on just making more money. And I'm currently obsessed with just making sure that women make more money because I want women to have more power. And in a capitalist society, money is power. Do you think there's any disjunct between pursuing your passion and pursuing financial abundance? Or do you think that if you pursue your passion, financial abundance will come? Boy, that's a tough question (laughs) because it really depends upon your passion and how you apply it. Um, I certainly have enjoyed financial success by pursuing my passion. Uh, and I've, I've had an incredibly supportive husband of 29 years in that pursuit. And it's taken a lot. I mean, it's taken a lot because I wanted it all. I wanted to have a family and I wanted to be successful at that. That's actually what I want to be remembered for, <laughs> not what I did in technology necessarily, but it it took the two of us doing it together. And I think finding that balance is important. I do think women actually tend to focus on the bottom line a lot more because of our uh, nurturing nature. But I think finding that balance where you can apply your passion and if it is you that needs to be the breadwinner, don't feel bad about it. I never felt bad about it. And, you know, it just really worked. But I think it is always a part of that balance. If you get too out of balance on one side or the other, you're going to feel unbalanced. And, you know, I think that's what leads to a lot of derailment of pursuing your passion. I know that some people have passion that, uh, you know, they pursue their dreams and they're not necessarily money making. But if it is what makes them happy and what makes them a productive member of society, then I commend them for that. And your balance between having a very big job and having children also, you still manage to find time to race cars. (laughs) (laughs) I want to hear about how you started racing cars and also how you find time for it, but mostly how how did you get into racing cars? 
I come from a speed-oriented family. (laughs) There's a lot of us in my family that have always been really into cars. Uh, Started with my father. I used to sit and hand him tools uh, when he was working on cars, used to customize cars quite a lot. Mm, all three of my brothers are into cars and so am I. And I, I don't know, it, it came from maybe being the youngest in the family. I was always trying to keep up with the older brothers and sisters and always wanting to do things sooner and uh, more in depth than when they started doing something. And, you know, it just, it started in high school and uh, my dad helped me. <laughs> get in the high school drags and it just sort of blossomed from there. It's just something that the, the engineering behind automobiles is really fascinating to me and learning about that really, again, it sort of feeds my passion on the engineering side of things, but then to be able to exercise the control it takes to be on my, my favorite, a Grand Prix style track, and the precision that it takes, the fast reaction time, the forethought, you know, a lot of that is just thinking under pressure, thinking clearly under pressure. And again, it's, it's an adrenaline rush to be able to do that and do it really well. Having said that, I've never been pro, never been competitive. I'm, I'm talking just, you know, track days. <laughs> Still, I mean, I love cars, but being able to appreciate the engineering of a car and being willing to put yourself in the car and go super fast speeds, those are two different things. <laughs> they are. They are. And, you know, I, I try to always keep it on the track, but it, it is a lot of fun. I've, I've been able to be on a track with family members. Um, I taught my one of my nieces and nephews how to drive a stick. That was always a requirement in our family to drive a stick first. And then I got to race one of them on a track day (laughs) not too long ago. That was fun. So an adrenaline junkie. I wonder if your race car driving gives you skills that help with your career. Do you think it does? Well, it requires attention to detail. It requires uh, thinking under pressure. You know, all of those go into my daily job too. Uh, thinking fast, owning a decision. (laughs) You really got to own a decision when you're ready to go into that turn. You know, you got to own it and you've got to just push forward. Uh, One of my favorite sayings from a family member is when in doubt, gas it. (laughs) 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 He was also an adrenaline junkie, actually. (laughs) But, uh, you know, it, it, it really is part of it. You have to be bold. You really have to own what you're doing and go for it. And I think that plays into being successful in a technology field. I love that. When in doubt, gas it. That is great. That's going to have to go into the uh, the vault of favorite quotes from Women Killing It. Um, <laughs> I just saw another quote. I forget now who was credited toward, but they said, if you take too long deciding your next career move, then you've actually decided it. You know, <laughs> you've basically, by not moving forward, you've made your decision. That's kind of like the flip side. If you if you don't want to end up making a decision passively when you're in doubt, just gas it, right? <laughs> That's right. So you have this big job. You're in charge of so many people and you've had these accomplishments of developing this platform. When you look back on your career, what are some highlights that stand out in your mind? Well, you know, I'm, I'm pretty proud of Sling TV. I think everything in my career has really led up to this. Um, I have had other successes. I've enjoyed other successes throughout my career. 
And yet Sling TV stretched me personally in a way that I hadn't been stretched before. And I really enjoy that. I really enjoy a challenge that I just, at the beginning of it, you just can't see how you're going to get it done. And then to go through it, and we're by no means done. There's so much more that we can do. And it's so exciting to see where we're going as an industry, to know that we're leading the industry. We were there first, and we're not about to give up that leading position. And to see the passion around me, to see all the people that are as passionate as I am working on this platform and this product and want to bring entertainment into tomorrow. And that, for me, I I can't necessarily imagine what it's going to be like in five years, but I know I'm going to enjoy the ride getting there. That sounds pretty awesome. Earlier, you talked about how important it is to ask for help. Are there any other lessons that you've learned or, or things that you wish you would have known when you were starting out in your career? I think the importance of alliances, and by alliances, I mean with people, again, the harder puzzle for me to solve, at least, the alliances with people that aren't necessarily in technology, but you need them. And to make something great, it takes a lot of disciplines. It takes a lot of different viewpoints, a lot of diverse input. And someone taught me probably 15 years ago that I really had to work to help others understand what it was we were trying to do at the time in the satellite industry so that they could help us and that those types of alliances were really important. And when I learned that lesson, it really made a lot of things easier. I wasn't always swimming upstream all the time. And I gained some great friendships and great colleagues in the industry. And I really realized at that point that, you know, not everybody has to be in technology. There's a lot of really great input coming from all aspects of our business that are important to make it a successful business. Do you think it's harder to make those alliances when you're in a male-dominated field and, you know, you're the only woman in the room? You know, I I don't actually. (laughs) I mean, it might sound cheesy, but I've always used that, I guess, to my advantage. I, I sort of, I guess, ignore the fact. Somebody actually pointed that out to me one time. They're like, you know, do you realize you are typically the only woman in the room in these meetings? And I thought about it and I'm like, well, gee, I I hadn't looked at it that way before. I just, I really don't see specifically gender defining who I am. I'm always cognizant of it, I, I would like to believe, and yet I don't let it define how I react to things. I want people to see me for me and for what I can offer and what I can contribute. I guess I've just always looked at it as, okay, you're either going to value my input and what I can deliver or you're not, but it hasn't been daunting to me. You know, I I think sometimes it's actually helped uh, meetings be more productive too. It's interesting, this idea of sometimes being the only woman in the room being, you know, something that you can use a little bit to your advantage. And there's the accusation that women kind of then don't see room for other women at the table. 
I did, obviously, you don't sound like one of those people because you, I've been doing, you talked a lot about how you try to mentor and bring women up. But what do you make of that argument that, you know, sometimes there's this advantage to being the only woman in the room and, and that gives almost an incentive to, to feel like there's only one spot for a woman and therefore it's mine. Have you seen that at all in your career? I really haven't. Uh, I always enjoy walking into a room and, and seeing another woman. I just, I immediately have an affinity towards them, I suppose. But I guess I just, I haven't encountered that in the disciplines, you know, that I work with. That would be unfortunate. I don't doubt that it exists, but that would be unfortunate to me. I actually love to hear that you haven't encountered it because it's one of those stories that's told a lot and portrayed a lot in the media and also by I think people, women anecdotally may have one experience with one, one bad experience with one woman and then cast this generalization over all women. And it's mm. one of those, those storylines that I think is really overplayed and, and quite not true, to be honest. Like, I do think women want to see another woman in the room. I mean, it's lonely being the only woman there, right? Yeah, it, it <laughs> um, really can be. And I, I guess uh, I just, I, I've never encountered that. And you haven't, you have not let your gender define you. And you also haven't had too many problems, it sounds like, with other people trying to limit you because of your gender. No, you know, I, I, I have had people that have attempted to dismiss me over time. But I, I simply kind of go back to, all right, well, I'm just going to keep knocking away at it. I, I don't know if it was because of my gender or they didn't like the color of my hair or what I was saying. I'd like to believe that, you know, the reason people try to dismiss you is because they don't like what you're saying, regardless of anything else. But if I really believe in, in what I am representing, I just keep going for it. And I've, I've never felt... I've never felt a glass ceiling, so to speak. You know, I, I, I've just been really fortunate in that regard. I haven't felt those limits. Um, I encountered one particular professor in college that was definitely pretty overt in not believing that a woman needed to be in his department. Uh, and that's where, you know, my college advisor stepped in and said, hey, don't let him define you. Don't let him limit you. Just prove him wrong. And I did. Well, Christine, this has been such an interesting interview. I'm really inspired and I definitely have a new favorite quote. And for people to follow you and kind of see what you're up to or to learn more about Sling, where should they go on the internet? Sling.com is the great place to go to see what we're doing with our products. Funny enough, I have a pretty small footprint when it comes to social media. <laughs> I'm on LinkedIn and that's it. <laughs> that's probably why you have time to race cars and be a mother. <laughs> no time wasted on social media. Okay, that's another lesson. That's another lesson for everybody. I, I guess you don't I, go on social media. <laughs> I, I feel as though people share maybe just a little bit too much of their lives sometimes on social media. So I tend to avoid it. <laughs> Thank you so much for your time and thanks for sharing your insights with our listeners today. Thanks so much for having me, Sally. Really enjoyed it. I'm joined by Allie Young, the CEO of The Forum, which gets women further faster. And we're talking about five critical skills for women to succeed in the workplace. Allie, which critical skill do you want to talk about today? Should we talk about personal branding? That's one of my favorites. Let's talk about it. Well, you have a great personal brand. Always a work in progress, right? We always... Uh, yes. Yes. That is true. Well, that's the thing about personal branding is that 
it's something that's very important when you start your career and to be mindful about it, but it becomes more and more important the more senior you get. And so we work with women who are young professionals who are thinking about their brand and how should they show up at work every day. But more importantly, we work with CEOs and women who are looking to expand their role. So a lot of them actually are looking to get onto board seats. And the best way you do that is through really refining and morphing your personal brand so that people are clear on the benefit that you provide to an organization and to your community or those around you. And what would you say is the first step for starting early on to develop your personal brand? Well, when I think about a personal brand, particularly when you're young, you may not always be completely in control of the personal brand that it may not encompass all of you. Let's put it that way. So a lot of people who are quite young and they're just starting out, their personal brand is really just about showing up, being really responsive, and executing flawlessly. But the more senior you get and the more tenured you are, you really get to be a little bit more authentic to you. So let's say you're somebody who is highly strategic or somebody that really executes some vision. Or if you're somebody who's highly operational, you can start really promoting that great strength that you have, which not only lets others around you and signals to them what you do and what you're good at, but it also signals to them where you can be at your best and the types of projects or organizations that you should be working in and then leading. How do you go about identifying? Um, I mean, I think a lot of us maybe don't know what our strengths are that we should be focusing on. That's true. That <laughs> happens. And, you know, again, it is going to change over time. The more that you learn, the more that you work, the more you can potentially, you know, hone in on different skills and strengths of your own. So one of the ways in which to really understand what your personal brand should be about is identifying what your great strengths are. And those strengths are the things that, the first of all, they're things that you're really drawn to. So a lot of times our strengths are derived from where our passion lies. And really being able to be strategic and intentional by setting aside time to outline what those strengths are. And then you want to understand, if you have these great strengths, you want to understand how people perceive you. So are they perceiving you as these great strengths that you have, or are you being perceived in a different way? Is there a gap there? If there is a gap, then it gives you an understanding of how do you start filling that gap? How do you start really being vocal about the things that you're strong at? And if there's not a gap, how do you start amplifying that personal brand in different ways? And what are some ways to amplify your brand? I mean, you might have an idea of what people think of you, but maybe people don't think anything of you because they don't know about you. <laughs> That's true. I mean, personal branding goes hand in hand with networking or your network. So when I think about a personal brand, when you're young in your career or you're new in an organization, perhaps your personal brand is only known to the very few people who you work with on your team. And then ultimately, the more senior you get or the more tenure you have within an organization, that brand should start expanding outside of your team to maybe your department and then outside of your department to the organization. And then as you become really senior, it's how do you start extending your brand and distributing it across your industry? Are you on panels? Are you doing speaking engagements? And if you're a CEO, are you really being intentional about your brand which then reflects back on your organization. Oh, that makes a lot of sense. 
Well, thank you for these insights. And uh, I know how important the personal brand is. And it's really interesting to me also that it changes over time. Yes. Well, Sally, can I ask you about your personal brand? Okay, (laughs) sure. So how do you think about your personal brand? Oh, man. The problem is I have these two different spheres, and I'm trying to bring those spheres together, right? Because I think there's people who know me in the context of the podcast, and it's all about celebrating women's accomplishments and putting women's role models out there and and creating a playbook for what works with women. And so hopefully— those people who know me in that context view me as a champion of women. And then I have a whole other brand, which is as an expert on tech platforms and antitrust. And so trying to kind of bring those two worlds together has been something that I'm working on. And I've actually looked at the the impact of monopolies on gender equality in an attempt to kind of merge my two kind of selves into one coherent brand. Right. Do you think, though, that you need to bring those two brands together all the time, or can they live in these distinct spheres as long as both are clear and strong? I mean, I guess they can live in distinct spheres. The problem is my own self wanting to kind of, well, have some free time. <laughs> you That's know, always nice. <laughs> and, you know, have the maximum impact that I can possibly have. And so I guess that's the question is if I'm living in two separate spheres, can I have as much impact as I want to have? Right. Well, I think that you'll continue to work on it, but ultimately you're creating I, – I, what I love about what you're doing and what you're seeking is the combination of the two, which is really forging a new path. And that is the hardest thing to do because there aren't other people who have done this. There's no one where you could look to and say this is the person who has done something that is exact – you know, they've um, taken all those steps that you're looking to take. But once you take them, I'm sure there's going to be other people that will look up to you and you will be forging that path. And I'll have to take inspiration from all the women who've been on this podcast who did forge their own paths when they didn't have someone to look up to and say, okay, I'm going to do what she did. So That's true. And what do they always tell you? They tell me just to do the next step that feels right and forge the path that serves your purpose and brings you joy. And so I'll have to follow that advice. I love that. (laughs) Follow what brings you joy. And that's always what your strength ends up being as well. Well, on that note, thank you so much, Allie, for your wisdom and for the personal life of career coaching session. (laughs) You're very welcome. Thank you, Sally. And I look forward to talking to you again about another critical skill. Me too. So for our listeners to learn more about the offerings that you have, where should they go? They should go to theforem.co, T-H-E-F-O-R-E-M dot C-O. Thank you so much, Allie. Thank you, Sally. If you enjoyed this show, please subscribe to our podcast, rate and review us on iTunes, and most importantly, tell a friend about us. Thanks for joining us.